Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Today's podcast is sponsored by June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game which transports you into a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance set in the glamorous 1920s. You'll play as June Parker as she embarks on a quest to solve her sister's murder. But that's not all. You'll let your imagination run wild as you get to customize your own luxurious estate island with expensive gardens and beautiful buildings. So, can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Can't get enough of true crime content like Serial and Making a Murderer? Join the club. Sundance Now Doc Club is a new premier streaming service for curated nonfiction content. From the Peabody Award-winning original true crime series The Staircase to the Oscar-winning documentary Murder on a Sunday Morning, Sundance Now Doc Club has an ever-growing library of critically acclaimed true crime content, available on web, mobile, Apple TV, and Roku. Start streaming the vast collection of true crime titles and get your free month at www.docclub.com crime. That's www.docclub.com crime. Hey, Kevin. Yeah. I've got a quick programming note before we start the podcast. Lay it on me. We get a lot of emails from listeners asking us to let them know in advance what we're going to be talking about next week. Yeah, that's always a good idea. But there's one problem with that, which is that sometimes we don't know. Sometimes... <laughs> <laughs> like we're talking about something this week, great documentary on PBS that we're going to talk about. And we try to give people a heads up on Twitter, but um, not everybody could see it. Because outside the country, you can't see it. But people who subscribe to our newsletter knew that because we sent out a newsletter about what we were going to be talking about. We figured it out a couple of days ago. So sign up for our newsletter at crimewriterson.com. But this week, we do know what we're talking about next week. All right. That is a little podcast called... Bowerville, but it's tricky because that's not actually the name of the podcast. What you have to do is subscribe to the podcast called The Australian, which is put out by a newspaper called The Australian, Australian, which is where? In Australia. In Australia, yes. But this series of episodes called Bowerville, as of this taping, there are three episodes. It is a fascinating true crime documentary done by a very interesting reporter. I promise our listeners you're going to love it. Download it now. Listen to it before our podcast drops next week and sign up for that newsletter on our website. And there's more things you can do on our website, like you could support the podcast by making a purchase through our Amazon link at crimewriterson.com. You just click on it. It takes you right to Amazon. You do all your rest of the shopping that you normally would do. And a couple of pennies from that comes to keep the podcast going. Well, this is the time of the podcast where we usually have Toby Ball read a list of some of the items that people purchase on Amazon this week, but we decided to do it a little bit differently we this did? week. We did. All right. I sent each of you the full list of items, and we each picked ones. So let's read them, shall we? All right. So, Toby, you're the guy who usually does this. What's your pick? I like the uh, unisex hot pink leg warmers. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Kevin? I went for upgraded 50 LEDs, luckled chuzzle ball, outdoor solar string lights, 23-foot fairy globe Christmas lights, decorative lighting for indoor 
garden home. That's very Toby inspired. The one yeah, because I don't know what solar lights are. <laughs> I don't know what chuzzle balls are. <laughs> what about you, Laura? What did you pick? Um, I picked the Tiggy Catwalk Your Highness Shampoo and Conditioner 25-Ounce Duo because I had no idea what this was. Is this a cat shampoo, a human shampoo? I, I was mystified. A shampoo made of cats, perhaps? For Her Highness. I chose the Beaver brand <laughs> Cranberry Mustard 13-Ounce Squeeze Bottle pack of six. <laughs> I almost picked that one. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about a podcast and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime, and occasionally other podcasts. Today, we'll be talking about the latest twist in the court-martial of serial season two subject, Bo Bergdahl. We'll get into the new PBS documentary on police SWAT teams called Peace Officer, and we'll also answer some of your questions, plus tackle the crime of the week. So joining me now to show the whole world what getting that done sounds like is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Rebecca, it's great to be back in the closet with you. It is. For, I didn't, that came out completely wrong. <laughs> and also on the line with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, and licensed private investigator, and newly licensed cat investigator, Laura Bricker. <laughs> Welcome back, Laura. Thank you. I've had a big week of cat detective work. Oh, I can't wait to ask you about that. And also with us is our favorite contrarian connoisseur, crime and noir fiction writer Toby Ball. Welcome back, Toby. How you doing? (laughs) (laughs) How you doing? All right. Before we get to our show, Laura, in 20 seconds, can you uh, give us the rundown on this cat detective story? Well, my cat has been missing for two weeks. Zelda, the fearful cat. Uh, My uncle let her out when we were gone. After determining my house didn't smell like a dead animal, I decided she might be outside. So we had various bowls of food around and I was tracking where they were eating, and I did finally get her, and I pounced on her, and uh, she is safely inside now. Is she a killing machine now? She wants to go back out. She's got the taste of uh, mouse blood now, so it may be all over. It's a pretty exciting story, and I have to say, your detective skills are unparalleled, I think, at least on this panel. Except for one thing, Laura. We need to start the show by issuing a correction, or perhaps letting you issue it. So can we please talk about all the emails and tweets we received this week about something that you did on our show last week? Well, I have to say, my husband has been telling me I'm getting a very Boston accent recently. So, Sarah, now I've had two pronunciations sent to me. So, Sarah Lancashire or Sarah Lancashire. But I said Sarah Lankenshire last week, and I apologize because she is my new favorite actress. So maybe our listeners can send some more tutorials on this uh, because I probably still did not get it correct. It's Lankenshire, as in the line from the Beatles, 4,000 holes in Blackburn, Lancashire. Okay, so Lancashire, not Lancashire. Right. All right. Right. I apologize. How could you embarrass us like that? (laughs) It was about time, huh? (laughs) Sooner or later it would happen. So I want to give us all a chance also to respond to a listener voice memo that came in to our inbox. I'm just going to play that real quick, and then, Kevin, you can take this one. Hello, crime writers. I was just wondering if you have to have a funny accent in order to have an audio message on your show. I also wanted to talk to you and say that I thought Kevin was very gracious when both Toby and Lara agreed with him that Purple Rain is not Prince's best song. Cheers. 
So, Kevin, are we discriminating against our American listeners or are more non-Americans just sending us voice memos? Yeah, we need more people from America calling on the show. <laughs> Got to make America great again on this podcast. No, it's just that our friends from overseas are like really into like wanting to be part of the podcast and they're the ones- Who know who, how to use their phones. I, I guess. Yes. <laughs> the rest of us here in America are too busy using our phones to play Angry Birds and uh, Tetris Blitz. Toby, do you have a theory as to why we get so many more uh, voice memos from other countries than we do from our home country of the United States? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We also got an email from Karen, although it looks like it's spelled Karen, so I'm just going to hedge my bets and say Karen Karen. She says, and this is abridged because her email was quite long, when comparing and contrasting British shows to U.S. TV shows last week, you discussed a few main points that characters in British shows are frumpier than U.S. shows, that British shows are more graphic and disturbing, and that typically the landscapes in the U.K. shows are gorgeous and mysterious, dark or gloomy. To me, the U.S. show that most closely represents this type of crime drama is The Killing. So what Karen Karn wants to know is why we left that show out of our conversation. Was it because we didn't watch it or was it because we didn't like it? Now, Toby and Laura, have either one of you ever seen The Killing? Uh, I, I have. Not. Toby, you have seen The Killing. What did you think of The Killing? It was right after I had knee surgery. So I was on pain meds the whole time. <laughs> And I just found that after a while, I was like, I don't even know what's going on. So I kind of bailed at that point. That was probably after watching about eight hours. We both enjoyed uh, The I Killing. I loved The Again, Killing. Again, it's derivative of a, uh, is it Norwegian or Scandinavian? It's Scandinavian, a, yeah. Yeah, you know, it, it's based on a very similar crime drama. It's a translation of a crime drama whose name we can't pronounce. <laughs> it has like a million uh, consonants right. in it. Right, but I understand that the original source material, again, it, the dreariness of the setting is a big part of the show's tone, and that part of Seattle mm -hmm. was also a part. In fact, when I went to Seattle, I went on uh, a I, killing tour. I went on a killing tour. Yeah, <laughs> I was actually going to the casino. It was it was a self guided killing. It tour. It was a self guided. Think. Yeah, there's a, there's an actual casino out there, and I took the ferry across the Sound, yeah. and I was like, man, this is just like. I'm looking for that graveyard. But we did like the kind I just it just didn't come up. It wasn't originally a British show, so I think maybe we overlooked it. But Right, right. It didn't come up. But the Killing is a very interesting show for our listeners who haven't seen it. It was an AMC show. I believe it was on for three or four seasons? Th three seasons. And the three fourth seasons. season was on Netflix. That's right. That's right. So there are four seasons total, and the fourth was on Netflix. It has a very satisfying conclusion, by the way, The Killing does. But it was a very controversial show because the first season sort of promised it was going to solve a crime and then it didn't. But I can say that now because you can just start watching the second season and get that conclusion that everybody was so angry about not getting. When yeah, it the didn't show was feel like a cliffhanger. Air. It just felt like... Yeah, they didn't solve it. Yeah, it was like... <laughs> People were pissed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so yes, I recommend The Killing very much on AMC and that was a neglectful thing that we didn't include in the show last And if year. you've seen it, then you'll understand this reference. It's the family where the guy says to the sons, your sister's dead, shut up and eat your pancakes. Happens all the time. Everybody's always having breakfast. Shut All up right. and eat your pancakes. So now let's move on to our first topic of the show that is not a correction or a listener question. Just as soon as we see the brakes put on the trial and breakdown, things are getting back into gear in the case that we discussed for many, many weeks this season, the court martial of Bo Bergdahl. You'll remember from Serial Season 2 that Bergdahl walked away from his unit's outpost only to be captured by the Taliban and 
held in captivity for five years. He says he did it to draw attention to leadership problems in his company. Others say he's a deserter who endangered the lives of other soldiers tasked with finding him. Well, in February, Bo's court-martial was put on hold after his lawyers requested access to hundreds of thousands of classified documents that they believe would help his case. The appeals court has made its decision. So to help us figure that decision out, Kevin talked to our resident expert on military justice, retired Marine Corps judge advocate James Wyrick. So let's just listen to their conversation. It's just a few minutes long. Thanks for taking the time to touch base with us because we know you've been following the Bergdahl case as closely as you can. And now there have been some significant developments regarding the stay in the Bergdahl case as well as access to those classified documents. So bring us up today. What's happened? Originally, the government filed an interlocutory appeal at the trial level, meaning that they appealed the judge's ruling on the defense's access to classified information. It made its way up to the Army Court of Criminal Appeals, and then the Army Court of Criminal Appeals sided with the trial judge. So now it'll just go back to the trial judge with the protective order as it was. So now the trial level lawyers will be working discovery with the defense team. And so they're looking at something like 300,000 documents to be declassified? Yeah, probably about 300,000 pages, I believe is the case. And that would be all classified discovery from all the major three-letter government agencies from CIA, DIA, FBI, NSA, anyone that had anything to do with the search for Bergdahl. Both sides seem to stipulate that Bergdahl went AWOL of his own accord, which is the essence of his crime. So what is it that you could possibly find in these documents that could be beneficial to his defense? This is what will be critical for the sentencing case. Because you're you're very correct that both sides, to a certain extent, stipulated that he left his post, so he did go AWOL. But as we heard in the, I believe, the second to last or last episode of Serial, you had Army Lieutenant General Flynn testifying that people definitely died looking for Bergdahl. So this discovery would be useful and necessary for the defense to rebut any suggestion of that. If you took Lieutenant General Flynn's testimony, when he said, you know, if somebody was walking down the road, hit an IED while looking for Bergdahl, that he connects those dots. So all of that discovery would, if the government decided to put on a case in the pre-sentencing phase to suggest that people died looking for Bergdahl, that would be what this discovery would be useful for the defense to rebut. So essentially, the strategy is to hopefully find evidence of mitigating factors which could necessitate a more lenient sentence. Or suggest that the missions weren't solely to look for Bergdahl. If you have a mission set that says do one, two, and three, and Bergdahl was number five on that list, then it's a little more attenuated that that person may have been injured or killed looking for Bergdahl. If that was the fifth mission order for that particular mission. Now, we just saw in the Breakdown podcast, that's the baby in the hot car death case of Justin Ross Harris, that it has been postponed and moved to a new venue due to pretrial publicity. In military courts, is there similar relief available? Uh, yes, there is. For the most part, it wouldn't be as geographic. It would be unit-based. And since Bergdahl's already outside of his unit, that would probably be the equivalent of a change of venue. But the defense will be given the opportunity during voir dire to question the members if any of the potential jurors had been with Bergdahl's unit at the time. 
Now, you say members, and that's the military term for jurors. Yeah, and, we call them members, but the same the same as a jury. Well, in the Breakdown podcast, they intimated that a case can be won or lost right at jury selection. So if you're Bo Bergdahl, what does a jury of your peers look like? By statute, it's any military member, but his defense team is probably going to look for a little more junior people, sergeants and the like, or more junior officers and they tend to be a little more lenient than senior people. I know, like, I would get a letter from the DMV saying, I've got to not show up to work on Thursday and come in for jury duty. Are these different servicemen who someone's in the infantry and somebody's pushing papers at headquarters and they all just sort of get called at random? Well, actually, they're selected by the convening authority. So that in this case, it would be General Abrams would actually select them based upon their experience, their knowledge, their time in service. Those that are best situated and have the best knowledge about fairness. And so he would select them and then order them to serve as members or jurors. So it's a little different from the civilian side. You don't have, you know, my cat's going to be sick that day, so I need to get out of jury duty. That's your place of duty on that day. So if you were prosecuting this case and you wanted a conviction, what would your next step be? I'll tell you, I've had this exact same issue, Kevin, and my next step would be getting through those 300,000 documents as quickly as possible for discovery and doing whatever I could to clear those with the relevant agencies because they're all one big government for the purpose of prosecution, but the different agencies might have different views on how important this is. So I I would imagine that the prosecutors are right now doing everything they can to satisfy their discovery obligations. The stay is off, but the timeline is probably going to be dependent on how soon the request for all of those documents can be fulfilled, right? Absolutely. And you'll still have some pretrial litigation. So now the case is just back into the trial judge's hands. So now the trial judge can set other motion practice, any sort of pretrial motions. He can set a timeline for that. Tell me again where you are, that you're not in your nice home studio. You're out in God's country? Uh, Yes, I'm out on a horseback riding trip in Santa Barbara. And that's where I got launched from my horse the other day and landed on my back rather suddenly and quickly. I would still be crying, but you got up and, uh, well, I guess you literally got back on the horse? Yes, I did for a little while and then had a CAT scan and found out that I fractured five ribs and five vertebrae. But you're like a Dothraki warrior. I mean, you're just, <laughs> do you have a Khaleesi on, on, the, on the, the back of the horse with you or something? Is that why you haven't called it a night? <laughs> The horde needs to keep riding. Hey, James Wyrick, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Kevin. It's always a pleasure. And say hello to Rebecca and the rest of the crime writers. So first, before we get into uh, the content of your conversation with Wyrick, can we just talk about his unbridled, excuse the pun, masculinity? What is he out there riding horses like in the desert or something like that? I just, he's, you know, I mean, he's, he's it's Santa Barbara, so I guess so that's... not the desert. Yeah, yeah. you know. <laughs> I mean, I guess there's a Starbucks nearby, but yeah, if I got thrown from a horse, like I'd still be crying. I'm sure that Laura has been thrown from many, many horses in her life, but Toby, if you were thrown from a horse and cracked several ribs, I imagine that you'd get right back on and continue with your vacation, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay. (laughs) 
Well, Laura, we heard Weirich talking with Kevin there about these classified documents getting unsealed. And of course, in New Hampshire cases, we don't so much have classified documents as we might have confidential or sealed documents. Is this ever an issue in criminal cases or maybe any of the criminal cases you've worked on where people were trying to get documents to help their side of of their defense? Oh, yeah, that happens a lot. A lot of times when somebody is, is first arraigned on a charge, the prosecution will try to keep the initial arrest warrant and affidavit sealed. And they try to keep it sealed from the defense as well. So defense attorneys often have to negotiate in court to get access to just that basic affidavit or file a motion to get that information. And I'm thinking of there was a kidnapping case in the North Country here recently that's still ongoing. And a lot of those documents were sealed. And they often say it's because the investigation is still ongoing. And the defense has to argue that this is going to harm their ability to provide a vigorous defense if they don't have access to that info. So it, it does go back and forth a lot. Now, that kidnapping case that Laura mentioned, we should say, is going to be a national story, I think, when it goes to trial. It's a very disturbing case. It's the Kibbe case. It's the Nathaniel Kibbe case. If you're interested to learn details of that, you can look it up because we're not going to talk about it right now. <laughs> That's for sure. But it does have a tremendous number of sealed documents and probably for good reason. Well, Breakdown did. We talked last week about um, how that change of venue sort of made that whole Justin Ross Harris trial fall apart. We did see the effect of pre-trial publicity in how thoroughly biased the jurors were coming into the door. And this week, there was a full episode of Breakdown devoted to that story. I'm wondering, Toby, between the Breakdown case and the Bergdahl court-martial, which of these defenses do you think will have a harder time finding impartial jurors, impartial people to serve on the jury? I think just based on the fact that it's in Georgia that the crime that he's accused of is so, you know, sort of, I mean, just the, the, the fact of what the crime is, is inflaming, I, I think, to most people. I think that is more difficult, hopefully, for Bo Bergdahl than being in front of professional military people who you would think would be able to, you know, kind of empathize with the situation that he's in a little more and be less inclined to let the charge itself sway their emotions. I'm going to actually take the opposite side. I think that it's harder for Bergdahl. In the the Ross Harris case, uh, he's getting his change of venue, and the makeup of the jury is going to be different. It may not be a jury that comes to a different conclusion than Cobb County jury would have had. But what Bergdahl has in his equivalent of a change of jurisdiction, just because he's with a new unit— those members, they're still in the military. So in a way, it is still like they're within the same community. They still have, I think, the same disposition to say, oh, okay, I can understand this because I am in the military and I wouldn't want another serviceman to do X, Y, or Z. In both cases, it's difficult. And I also think in the Bergdahl case, you do have the specter of undue command influence when you have presidential nominees calling for the guy to get thrown out of a helicopter and whatnot. I don't strongly disagree with Toby, but I take the opposite view. I actually wonder, though, if the military members serving on a jury might have a more ingrained sense of duty when sitting on a jury than civilians might. And Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that they are charged with doing a job while they sit there, which is to listen to the facts, weigh the evidence, and then make a judgment based on the burden of proof being met or not met. But I do kind of wonder that. And I wonder, Laura, you know, in your experience with juries, you know, civilian juries deciding criminal cases, do you have an opinion as to whether or not people who are charged with, you know, being objective, if, you know, maybe having more of a sense of order and discipline in your makeup 
would make you a better or more fair jury or not? Do you not think it matters? Boy, that's a tough one, you know, because I think so many people in the military have really preconceived ideas about the Bergdahl case. So I think that it would be very hard for them to put those aside. You know, it's kind of like thinking about the difference between having a jury trial and a trial with a judge. And, you know, some people think that having a trial with a judge maybe is better because the judge is going to have to follow the law regardless of their emotional feeling about things. Whereas, you know, people on a jury might be more inclined to get caught up in the emotion of a case and that might sway them more. So it's tough to say with the military because I know, you know, it seems like we have had so many people that felt so strongly about Bo. I don't know if they could set that aside. But I think what Weirich is intimating is that what the defense hopes with junior officers is that the panel would be made up of people who have not spent a career giving orders and expecting people to execute those orders, that it would be more junior officers or non-commissioned officers or enlisted men who are more of the mindset that they listen to orders and they execute the orders versus someone who would have, you know, if this is an order, I expect you to do it. That's kind of what the defense tact may be. But who knows? I mean, they still have to go through it. You know, just having been on a, a bunch of juries. Yeah, rub it in. No, I've never been on one. Tell us again about your jury experience real quick. <laughs> <laughs> I've been on four. I was on one in uh, Washington, D.C., which was uh, an attempted breaking and entering which was actually, it turned out, a peeping Tom case. Was the, that the law and order twist? Yeah, no, right. <laughs> you know what it was? It was that the cops, without getting too off track, is this guy was a serial peeping Tom. Like, he had come from jail. He was doing it all over the place. But the police who arrested him didn't know this. So they basically saw him trying to peep in on this woman, but it looked to them like he was trying to break in just very ineptly. So I talked to both lawyers afterwards and the prosecutor said it's just really hard because I knew what this guy was trying to do, but neither the policeman had a clue. So it, it made it very difficult to kind of come up with a coherent story. So there was that. And then I had three in New Hampshire. One is in, it doesn't get much more New Hampshire than this. It was a timber taking trial where a guy cut <laughs> like a quarter of an acre of woods on this other guy's land by accident. By air quotes accident or by accident accident? I think it was legitimately by accident. Okay. Um, there was a, one that's a very long story, but it essentially the crux of it was this guy's girlfriend took her car and demolition derby this guy's dad's car and then the guy worked at a body shop and tried to like pound the car out to make it look okay but, <laughs> so there like was that Brady Bunch <laughs> but this this one had a huge law and order moment where one of the lawyers like asked a question where he did not know what the answer was going to be and it took a quite a turn for the worse and then the other trial was this guy who's driving with a suspended license, like how that even got to trial. I don't know. But anyway, that's a long way of saying I've been on a bunch of juries. And my sense from being on those juries is that would be really hard in the breakdown one for the defense to get past is there's no way I would leave my kid in the car. Right. And, and I just think just the fact that that is what happened, whether it was intentionally or unintentionally, it's just going to be so, so hard especially for people who either have had kids or or have kids who are that young relatively recently. I think that's going to be hard, which is why I think, you know, almost any venue that you stick it in, you know, you're going to. Right. 
Yeah, sorry. Uh, Inappropriate. Yeah. It's been a while He's since we had He's talking about leaving home. kids in the car, for God's oh, sake. I just, you said are stick you, it in. Are you not know. listening? Yeah. <laughs> that was just my sense, and it's not even a matter of whether they change venue or not. That just seems to me like it's just going to be a, a tremendously difficult thing to get past. Now, Laura, I'm wondering, there was a uh, story this week where there was another child who died in a hot car, very tragically, and I read today that charges are not going to be pressed against the parent. I guess it was determined that it was an, an accident. When you're trying a case like this and you have somebody who's on trial for a crime and then you know a similar incident happens and you know, the police decide not to press charges and you sort of have this like parallel situation out there do you think something like that could be helpful to Justin Ross Harris? Yeah. I mean, it's like when somebody is getting sentenced or, you know, somebody is getting an offer in a case, a plea offer. You go around and you kind of look at similar cases and look at, you know, what sentence people got, what mitigating factors there were, and try to come up with, you know, it's like when you're, you're buying a house and you're looking for comps. That's what kind I was going to say. It's like, it's like, yeah. it's like comps on a house. Yeah. So I think it could be helpful. Um, he's just got so many bad facts. But again, those may or may not even come into the case. It's the kind of thing because you try trying to determine whether or not it's right a mistake or it's intentional. And so that requires an awful lot of not only discretion, but a lot of research. You have to learn a lot. And we like to learn a lot of things here. And that's why we're excited about the new Great Courses Plus <laughs> video learning service. Because wow. you can learn about anything and everything from the Great Courses. And we really want you to try the Great Courses Plus. And so we're giving our listeners a special chance for this new course, Forensic History, Ooh. Crimes, yes. Frauds, and Scandals. Wow. And hundreds of others have course it's absolutely free so all you got to do is you go to the great courses plus remember they're offering our listeners a chance to stream hundreds of their courses including forensic history that's a 235 dollars value for free and when you go to the great courses plus.com slash crime so check it out it's taught by professor elizabeth murray i'm really excited to see it i actually might watch this one <laughs> you know my my son wants to major in forensic science well great course and plus. You get can you free. get a degree because it's a lot cheaper you can't but you might want to convince him <laughs> especially when you get your first month free go to the great courses plus.com slash crime wow anything else that we need to talk about kevin well you know you've already done the hard part rebecca i have you have you came up with the idea you put it together. Now it's time to get that idea out to the world with your own professional quality website, blog, or online store. What was my idea? <laughs> you had one. Okay. You had one, right? right? And so now you go out there and you want to share it. So that's why you have to use Weebly. Weebly was created for people who have dreamt of being their own boss, going out there and getting it done. You don't have to know how to code. You just want to make a fantastic website and you can do this very easily with Weebly. I use it every day at work. It's simply drag and drop and you can quickly build a site, publish a site. It's that easy. Text, image galleries, you can add code and flash if you know how to do that and want to or you can just add some funky borders. It looks great on both desktop and on mobile and Weebly has a great app where you can change your website the back end of it remotely. Very cool. Now, if I wanted to add some like 90s style, like fancy gifts with like dancing leprechauns and stuff, could I do that on Weebly? If you, you, you could. Okay. You could. <laughs> you checking. wouldn't want to. <laughs> Just checking. But you could. So creating a fantastic website shouldn't get in the way of your dreams. Join the over 30 million people who are already dreaming big with Weebly. Get started today for free at Weebly.com slash crime writers. That's W-E-E-B-L-Y. 
Audible.com slash Crime Writers. I feel like we should have one of our previous sponsors in this week's episode because all I can hear in the background right now is our dogs barking. Someone must be driving past our house. <laughs> it would be good Foley for that ad. The dogs aren't allowed over at Control Room 5. Why are they here at Studio C? So can we move on to the next part of our conversation now, Kevin? I wanted a score. How, how was that for transition, guys? What do you guys think? You know, there was, a, it was one of those things where I didn't see it coming until it was there. Mm. So based on that, I'm worried that my scores are creeping high and I'm not giving you enough room to, to improve, develop. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, like a nine seven. Wow. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah, I liked I, I thought that was solid. Well, what did you think of the delivery of the ads though? I know the transition was, you know, solid, but what about like the actual read of the ads? What do you think of that? Well, I think after you edit them, they'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Laura? What do you give uh, Kevin for his ad transition and reading this week? Well, the transition just came from nowhere, like, you know, speeding bullet or something. So I'm gonna give it I haven't been giving number scores, but I might start letter scores this week. I'm gonna give that one an A minus. Wow. Smoother than a fresh jar of Skippy. You know, you don't see it coming, just like that burglar who's actually a peeping Tom. <laughs> That's what yeah. she said. Oh, you don't, oh, you don't see him coming. Okay. Oh, God. <clears throat> Do you know how many of those cases I've had to investigate? Did you uh, investigate the... Um... I cannot oh, comment. Oh. oh, never mind. <laughs> never mind. I didn't realize no, that you I couldn't talk a... about the things that you did, because you always talk about the high-profile case that you did, and we're always like, what is she talking about? Yeah, no, I can't. But yeah, I I, could, I did a lot of like low-level ones where it's just like people out there looking in windows and stuff, <laughs> and they're like, I was just going to the bathroom. And you're like, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it really had bush. to go. So did you really relate to Mr. S when you heard about him on Serial? <laughs> yeah, I've known a lot of Mr. S's. All right, well, bringing this conversation up a couple of notches toward the highbrow, let's talk about something that was on PBS, shall we? This week we all watched the PBS independent lens documentary called Peace Officer. I'm going to be honest. I watched it because Kevin made me, and then uh, I made you guys watch it because I enjoyed it so much. Uh, this documentary looked at the increasing militarization of police departments Departments, SWAT teams in particular. Now, no matter what you think about this issue, this was a fascinating film in large part because of its central character and the way the film told the story. Most of the narrative is told through the eyes of this one guy. His name is William Dub Lawrence. He's a retired county sheriff who founded a special reaction team in the 1970s. 30 years later, he watched as that same SWAT team killed his son-in-law after a long day's standoff. But the film also includes interviews from some of those SWAT cops, a police chief who feels very strongly that tanks and SWAT gear do actually make us all safer. So I know that not all of our listeners are able to see this film. Unfortunately, we discovered that the uh, free links online are not available outside the U.S. So we will definitely get no voice memos from people with funny accents <laughs> about, about, peace officer. about Peace Officer. Yeah, we looked into it. Unfortunately, it's not America! available. <laughs> so we're going to keep this conversation pretty broad. But I do want to talk about this guy, Dub. Toby, what did you think of this guy's character? I just kind of want your thoughts on this guy that we met right at the beginning of this film. You know, I think he's he seems like the kind of cop that you want to have in your town. You know, he took the concept of peace officer very seriously. I wish they talked a little bit more about his decision to put together a SWAT team in that county a little bit more. I know it was in reaction to the initial ones being set up after the Watts riots, because he doesn't really come off as being the type of person that you think would see that as being, you know, super necessary for the work that he does. And I think maybe in his mind it was it was for something that you would use like once a year or, or in very, very special situations. And, you know, part of what's interesting is watching 
sort of his dismay as he sees what he started, what it has become, and how frequently it's used and what the consequences of that are. Laura, one of the things that really struck me about him is that even though he's telling this really tragic story, which, by the way, I know that it's, I want you to also address this, it's really unusual for a cop to be the one telling the story about the misdeeds of other cops and of the system of cops, but he was also such like a joyful and peaceful person at the same time. I mean, do you strike you that way, too? Yeah, actually, I was going to say he's very smiley. He just, he looked always smiling. He looks so nice. And and that was the thing. It's like he's in the midst of a very awful situation, and he just seemed to have such a positive outlook. He, he definitely looked like somebody that was optimistic. But like Toby said, he was just somebody that was so honest. He gave himself a parking ticket at one point. While he was an officer, yeah. When he was still in office, um, somebody had called. They said, hey, you're not supposed to park there. And he went out and gave himself a ticket. I was struck by it was just so unusual because we don't see that a lot where police speak up um, about the system, especially police that have been supervisors like he was, um, you know, in a position to oversee the entire department. Um, I think that's very rare. And I think that's what lent a lot of credibility to it. Uh, well, I think that he is very credible and very likable. He was a very handsome man when he was young man. Yeah, he was a Marine, and then he was a sheriff, and then he ran for county commissioner, and he's in his 70s, I guess, and he still has, you know, this this John Glenn kind of all-American square jaw kind of look. He has a retirement job. He has a retirement job. Fixing, fixing sewage pumps. <laughs> yeah, which, which I, yeah, I did not need to have that. Uh, <laughs> that visual. <laughs> well, but it was just like, it was, it was like, he's a man who likes to get to the bottom of problems and right. then fix them. Right, it's like, right. Oh, God. But he also has an airplane, like he flies planes. Yeah. He has a plane. He's like, he's like a very like interesting person. Yeah. He's like one of the more likable protagonists in that kind of thing. Like he's not annoyingly self-righteous mm-hmm. or anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, he just seems seems just sort of genuinely concerned and also feeling somewhat responsible for the the part that he played in getting that thing going. He's able to bring us a, a sense of credibility with him because of his background. And while like in Making a Murderer, Stephen Avery's parents are very endearing, but Dub comes across like a much more powerful, much more believable, trustworthy character because of his background and because he's playing against type. I want to talk about something else that we saw on another side of Dub's character. And he is an investigator, and he's now investigating these SWAT team incident scenes. And I've never seen anything like this in real life. I've seen it on CSI, certainly, where he's investigating the scene and he makes all the strings go, like where the bullets <laughs> went. And it's like incredibly complicated. And at one point, he's able to calculate the trajectory of a bullet and digs a little hole in the wall and reaches in and the bullets are there. Like he's really, really good at it. And he's looking at scenes that police have already examined and finding new evidence. Laura, you are the only one among us who actually has had experience with crime scene investigation. Is Dub a good investigator? Did it seem like he knew what he was doing? Because I was really sort of blown away by the entire sequence in the film. Yeah, I was blown away. I mean, I've never worked on a case that had quite that many bullets. So I was just so impressed watching, like you were saying, um, with the strings and where, you know, at one point when he was able to deduce that this police officer might have been killed by friendly fire based on how he reconstructed things. So I was impressed. He was very, very thorough. When we see Dub demonstrate his competency it increases his credibility with the viewer. He's not just a crackpot or an advocate or saying... like a sad dad. Yeah, and just saying, oh, this is really... The system is really broken. He's actually demonstrating 
this is what happened here. And what we see are the two kind of cases in which SWAT teams are deployed in modern day. And one has to do with a standoff where the SWAT team is brought in to protect a perimeter and to try to de-escalate violence. And the other is this new thing where local police are using military-grade weapons to execute search warrants and arrest warrants. And they're going in special forces style. In the middle of the night. A lot of times in the middle of the night. And it can be confusing to the person on the inside of the house who's knocking down the door. A, I mean, if you're a hardened criminal and you hear somebody kicking in the door, you may not be thinking it's the police. You may be thinking it's your competition. Or if you're a law-abiding citizen and you're like the guy who they mistook for being AWOL, you hear people knocking down your door, uh, you think it's a home invasion. And so those cops are in a position now where instead of de-escalating the situation, they are inadvertently amplifying the danger by going in hot. Now, zooming out, let's talk about that big story in the film, because what it really is about, you know, is that this policy the federal government has of handing down uh, military-grade vehicles and other equipment to local police departments. Now, we've seen this in Keene, New Hampshire, with the Bearcat situation there and, you know, the the pumpkin-fest raids. We saw those heavily armed police guys come out. Uh, Toby and Laura, do either one of your local police forces have Bearcats or tanks roaming down your New Hampshire streets? Toby, what about you all the time really it's constant <laughs> now i i i don't know i would assume that if Keene does i assume durham does because we've got the major state university in our town but i've Cinco never seen drinko, it toby <laughs> yeah well there, there's a van that goes around it says university of new hampshire special operations team yeah yeah mm-hmm. and it's in a van i'm like what the hell is that why are oh, you I've, driving I've around been on to, like a I've, tuesday afternoon i've been to riots at unh at near downtown durham <laughs> oh, it was yeah, sports you burned, related, I think. burned couches oh were you covering yeah. that i was covering yeah oh, no okay. i didn't like go to one i meant yeah i was covering them from yes it's a for our listeners abroad university of new hampshire like if any boston team wins anything they're like duty bound to riot it usually takes a form of burning couches right and then kids taking running jumps over that, and eventually some kid trips and like gets third degree burns. And I th- actually think it was the UNH hockey team in the final four, Frozen Ooh. Four, something like that. Yeah. But back then they didn't have a Bearcat to roll out, right? Like they do now. Yeah. Mm. If, if they had, it would have been a very different situation. I know we have a regional one here that goes through the entire seacoast. And, you know, the thing that I've noticed about it is they get called out a lot for like suicidal people and i always just find that like seriously somebody's suicidal and barricaded in their house i i don't know if this sort of presence with this tank outside is really going to calm them down for people who didn't get a chance to see the film the situation with this guy's son-in-law is that he domestically abuses his wife and then distraught he goes into his truck with a gun and the police response is basically to send I would say what do you think like 50 there are officers from neighboring towns you know there's all these cars there's a helicopter surrounding they're using flash grenades and gas to to the casual observer it it would seem disproportionate right I mean even to a non-casual observer I think I mean I just I don't know what the what the thought process was like how that was going to de-escalate it that was to me such a startling visual of putting out this much force to deal with a guy who essentially seems to be having sort of a suicidal nervous breakdown who really probably needs to be talking to somebody, not have 
you know, 40 guns trained at him. Well, this gets to sort of, you know, the chicken egg thing here with the system, which is do the police officers need these military grade weapons and equipment to be more responsive and to make things safer? Or does the presence of these military strike vehicles and all the other equipment, does it change the tactics that they use? I mean, if that standoff happened 40 years ago, there would be a couple of police officers there, and they might be taking cover behind their car so that in case the despondent person decides he wants to turn the gun on somebody else, they don't get shot. There wouldn't be a paramilitary force surrounding the perimeter to also ensure that he doesn't hurt anybody else, but also to you know have the capability to throw all these flashbang grenades and plastic bullets. And which came first? Was it the need for those vehicles to be there and to be used in that way? Or are the police being militarized because they have those pieces of equipment? Yeah, so it was interesting. The um, ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, actually just did a big report on this called War Comes Home. And they found that SWAT teams, which were originally really devised to send people out in emergency situations, are now deployed for drug searches more than they are for all other purposes combined. Mm. And they did a survey nationwide. And they also kind of came back with the feeling that this change in equipment really was paralleling sort of a change in the mindset and the climate of the police officers where the police were feeling like they were more at war in the communities Mm -hmm. um, than maybe how they previously felt when they were going out. We actually did see that. We saw these very compelling interviews with these two SWAT team officers. And one of the reasons why I like this documentary so much was that it didn't have that burden that you see like in a lot of these documentaries where like it's telling a story and it just shows you like all the super bad stuff. Like, you know, you can argue that making a murderer like they didn't have the participation of anybody in the hallback side or on the prosecution side. So like it was a very defense oriented documentary. This one, there was a police chief, there was the DA, and there were these two really compelling SWAT team officers who participated in that raid that we saw Dub investigate with all the strings. And they made for themselves a case as to why this was necessary. And their case was, we're not fighting the kind of people we were fighting back then. This is a new breed of criminal. I really think that they believed it. They weren't bad guys. I think the documentary was very even-handed, I thought, and I think it gave you the thing to think about. I mean, they didn't villainize individual officers. It wasn't about bad cops going out and doing bad acts. It wasn't about that. No, and it, it, it was, you know, the fact that it had been Dub's SWAT team was more of an irony versus, you know, his Frankenstein monster that has come back to haunt him. But I think, you know, for those who haven't seen it and think that this is just a, a hit piece on police and police tactics, I think it was still very well handled. And I think that, you know, it just gives you something to think about because they didn't just sort of take the bad sound bites from, you know, macho cops and saying that we need this. I mean, they were able to make, you know, some good points about officer safety. And this is sort of the state of policing these days. Right. And then you also see the guy who whose house invaded has like six plants in his basement. And that was the whole reason why they did that. It's why Tim Raid. All right. Well, Toby, you're also a fan of somebody who appeared in the film. Radley Balco. Is that how you pronounce his name? The Washington uh, Post journalist who was sort of a spokesperson in the film about the history of the SWAT team issue. Why are you such a fan of this guy and why should we read his stories? So if you found this subject interesting, Radley Balco has a blog on the Washington Post website that's called The Watch. 
And, you know, he probably updates it average of three times a week or whatever. But it's all about this stuff. It's about the militarization of the police. It's about bad forensics. He's done a lot of stuff on bad forensics. A lot of the stuff that that we've talked about, uh, what is it, civil asset forfeiture, he's done a lot of stuff on. And those towns that basically raise their money by handing out traffic tickets Mm -hmm. and uh, and court costs to poor people. So he's very interested in these civil liberties issues, especially as they relate to crime. You know, I read it religiously, and I've tweeted about it in the past, but I I highly recommend it. I think he's doing, like, so the most interesting and important mass audience work in that area. If you find this kind of stuff interesting, I guarantee that you'll like his blog. It's called The Watch, and it's on WashingtonPost.com. We'll put a link to that on our website. Laura, this film, Peace Officer, it did not minimize the fact that being a police officer in this country is a very difficult and dangerous job and that the system really is part of the job. You know, what they're trained to do, the equipment they have, it's what they have, and they're told to do what they do. And I'm curious, you know, your husband is a fire chief, so you're not super far removed from law enforcement. Do you think there really is an argument here to be made that, you know, this advanced stuff makes these guys' jobs easier? I mean, I'm just curious to know where you where you land on this. Well, I think it kind of depends on the case. If they're just using this to go in on drug searches for marijuana, that doesn't really seem like a great use of this equipment. There's certainly cases where they do need this kind of equipment to keep them safe. You know, we had a horrible or actually, I think it's the anniversary today. We had a horrible case close to me where a guy was living with his father in a local community in like an elderly housing community, and he was really not mentally stable, and he was, you know, hitting his father. Someone called 911, and the first police officer that got there was shot immediately upon going into the house. And this ended up being a horrible situation where people were shooting and there was, you know, people that needed to be evacuated. That's a case where you could see it being necessary. But it really, I think, depends on the case. And I think in the wrong hands, this does escalate situations. Well, you know what? We would love to hear from our listeners on this topic. It's obviously a wide-ranging and nuanced topic. I would love to know what our listeners think about police forces using SWAT teams and military gear. Send us an email or a voice memo at crimewriterson.com. Maybe we'll share them in a future newsletter or episode. We'll touch on this topic again. But this has been a very interesting conversation about this film, Peace Officer. If you are in the U.S., We've posted a link to the film on our website on the post for this episode at crimewriterson.com. You can watch it on on demand. Uh, Look for Peace Officer on PBS, or you can watch it free on the website for the film. We've posted that link on our website as well. Honestly, no matter where you stand on this issue, it's just it's a really good film. I wouldn't say that it was a good film if it wasn't, and I highly recommend it. Well, I'd like to move on now to my favorite part of the show. Is that Um, the part where I say you don't go to the post office? Yes, yes. Yes, that's the part of the show, Kevin. Because, you know, when you're working past 9 to 5 like we are, you don't have time to go to the post office. You, you need you a better way, and that's using stamps.com. You get the postage you need in an instant so you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package right from your computer and your printer. If you're running a small business, you're sending invoices, you're shipping products, you don't have time to go to the post office. And by the way, this is real postage. It's not like generic, fake <laughs> Postage. <laughs> Stamps.com partners with the U.S. Postal There's, Service. Such a thing as generic postage. Is, is that a problem? Like counterfeit no, postage? No, it isn't. It's like like forty-three fake cents. Like like fountain towels. Stamps.com actually partners with the U.S. Postal Service, 
They all wanted to make it easier for you to get the postage that you need. Plus, when you join Stamps.com, you could get special postage discounts that you can't even find at the post office. So it's a great deal. You should go to Stamps.com and use our promo code CRIMEWRITERS for this special offer. It's a four-week trial. Plus, you get a $110 bonus offer, which includes postage and a digital scale. So get started with Stamps.com today. Within minutes, you'll be printing postage right from your desk. Go to Stamps.com, and before you do anything else, you click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Crime Writers. That's Stamps.com. Enter Crime Crime Writers. Writers. (laughs) (laughs) Did I mess up your flow there for a second? All right. Now I really want to move on to my favorite part of the podcast, a little thing I like to call the Crime Of the week. Nearly 50 years after he escaped from a Georgia prison camp, the long arm of the law finally caught up with Robert Gordon Stakowitz, living under an assumed name in Connecticut. Stakowitz escaped. (laughs) Connecticut, as you like to say. Connecticut. Stakowitz escaped from the prison infirmary in 1968, about two years into a 17 year sentence for robbery by force. Cold case detectives tracked down the 71 year old man repairing boats in the small town of Sherman. In all that time, he never reoffended, never even got a traffic ticket. He lived such an unassuming life that the only thing residents could say about the man they knew as Robert Gordon was that he always got the meatball sub for lunch. That's it. Even though he had a driver's license and a mortgage, Stockowitz was discovered when he tried to apply for Social Security. So here is my question for all of you. Kevin, I'm going to start with you. Should Stockowitz go back to prison? Is it worth the effort to close a case like this, especially when the offender is a peaceful, meatball-loving old man? What do you think? <laughs> well, oh, he likes meatballs? That makes a difference. Well, you know, he's not John Valjean. I mean, there's no... Javert, who's been chasing him for 50 years. Yeah, I mean, I would have to say I'm sympathetic to the fact that the guy lived peacefully, apparently did not reoffend, and, you know, kept a low profile. But I think he has to go back to jail. I mean, he still has 15 years on a sentence. And now a judge may decide, you know, they could reduce that and give him some time off. But I don't think just because now I'm an old man, I don't need to serve my sentence. In fact, you know, when you talk about cold cases, and we have a link to this on our website this week, is to an article that you and I wrote about a cold case in which the offender was already dead. Right. But investigators still felt the need that they could close the case. So I think it's important that, yeah, still, that justice needs to come, even if it's justice delayed. What do you think, Toby? Should this guy Stockowitz go back to prison? Is it worth the effort? Uh, he's 71 years old, and it's been, I don't know, 50 years since he escaped from prison. What do you think? Well, you escaped from a prison camp, which sounds awful. Mm-hmm. But do we know what he did? Armed robbery by force. But what does that yeah, mean? Yeah, like 17 years is a is a pretty serious sentence. So my feeling is, yeah. It was Georgia. It was Georgia. <laughs> Sentencing it was Georgia. there is tough. We know that. Yeah, he might have been arrested in Cobb County, sure. Yeah, no, I would, I would definitely send him back. And like the whole, like... Yeah, no kidding. He didn't get in any trouble because he knew if he got in trouble, he'd be doing another 15 years, even if it was for like a moving violation. Yeah, I mean, I, it doesn't mean he's a pillar of society. It just means he was keeping his head down. Just because you can hide out well doesn't mean you get to not pay your debt. What do you think, Laura? Well, I, I disagree. You know, I would like to argue that basically what he did equated to being on house arrest or probation for these 50 years, and he didn't reoffend, and he was on good behavior. 
I think that the cost of getting this guy back to Georgia and, and dealing with this, it's unnecessary. But if he does go back, I would like to offer to send him some meatball subs with our Amazon earnings. <laughs> our, our, our very, very vast Amazon yes. earnings. So keep buying things so we can send him some meatball subs, this poor old guy. You know, Laura, I actually kind of side with you on this. I, I know that it really depends on the infraction. I know that it really depends on whether or not there's a real victim of the crime who is losing out because justice is not being served. Kevin and I wrote a book uh, called Our Little Secret about a cold case. The guy had 20 years. He committed a murder when he was 17. He was arrested when he was 37. In the 20 interstitial years, he lived an upstanding life. He was a great citizen. He had family, friends. He had a nice business. And when it was time to sentence him for this murder when he was committed when he was 17, the argument against it was he's proven. I mean, if the whole point of going to prison is rehabilitation, he's proven that he's rehabilitated. So for me, it is a real moral dilemma. But in that case, there was a victim and there was a victim's family who had never seen any time served for the murder of their family member. And I'm not sure that's that's true in this case. But, um, Kevin, I do have one final question for you. Yeah. Uh, Stockowitz was only known as the guy in the town who ate meatballs. When you're an old man in our town, what's the guy that everyone's going to know you as being? That's yeah, the guy who made those horrible transitions into those commercials. <laughs> what about you, Toby? You're going to be the guy who does dot, dot, dot. Uh, I'm the guy who every other uh, Friday orders a turkey club sandwich at Libby's. Oh, hardened criminal there. What about yeah. you, Laura? Is this going to go back to your cat investigation skills? You're the lady who does what in your town? Well, I staked out the cat. I'm going to stake out the neighborhood when I'm old. <laughs> and stake out this last. Uh, white okay. chocolate raspberry scones. scones yeah. Yes. <laughs> she beat me up over scones once. Yeah. I'll be keeping a tally of who's taking the scones. She's on the lamb eating scones. Yeah. Well, I guess we should probably end it on that note. Laura Bricker, you are on the Twitter, correct? I am. It's at Laura Bricker and it's L-A-R-A. And Toby Ball, how can our listeners find you on Twitter? At Toby Ball and H. And Kevin Flynn, if people want to tweet with you, how can they do that? What is this Twitter you speak of? <laughs> I am at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to send me a tweet or follow me on Instagram, you can find me both places at Reb Lavoy. Our little show is also on Twitter at Crime Writers On. So send us your questions or comments in a tweet or send us a voice memo. The directions for how to do that are posted on our website, crimewriterson.com. While you're there, you can sign up for our newsletter, make a PayPal donation, or use our Amazon link. And if you love the show, please leave a review on iTunes. It really helps us out. Our theme music was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. And this show was recorded in Studio C at Partners in Crime Media, a.k.a. The Kill Room in Our Basement. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Toby, it's connecting. Click, Toby. I'm here. Oh, wow. He sounds awesome. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's so awesome. God damn it, Toby. Damn, uh, Toby. I'm going to pause for one minute, folks. The cat is meowing here. Hold on. Okay, my dogs are barking, so it's fine. You know, she got stuck in here with me, locked on the porch, so I got to let her out. You might not see her again. It's like Limetown. <laughs> it is like Limetown. So joining me now to show the whole world what getting that done would sound like is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Good to help. Hello, Kevin. Did you just write a good day? <laughs> I did not. Is your head still overseas? You should say something different because I'm going to cut out when oh. I said that. So I'm going to say... Uh, I was going to make you keep it in. No, 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 no. 
So joining me now to show Keep it, it in. <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> so it's your mom. Okay. We'd like to thank today's sponsor, Sundance Now Doc Club. Sundance Now Doc Club is your destination for a rich library of true crime content. Don't miss out on the original true crime series, The Staircase, and other captivating true crime films on Sundance Now Doc Club. Available on web, mobile, Apple TV, and Roku. Start streaming now and get your free month at www.docclub.com slash crime. That's www.docclub.com slash lowercase crime. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.